All right, good morning, all people's church. Good to be with you today. Appreciate the opportunity to, I don't know if we're preaching or teaching, sharing, whatever we're doing, it's a privilege to be with you today. And uh, our theme, the theme for this season we're in is called I Am Free. And uh, my wife and I get the privilege of speaking on I Am Free from Religion. Because we are free from religion, and uh, but we don't always know that, and we don't always live into that. So we're gonna we're gonna take off on that today. So you ready? Yeah. Take it. <laughs> I wanted to begin with the story of something that just happened this week to me. I was it was the end of a long day. I was really tired. I had worked really hard, and I felt like I needed to reward myself. And I saw a right aid. Now, if you don't know it, Rite Aids have Thrifty ice cream. Yeah. And Thrifty ice cream has my favorite, which is Rocky Road. And uh, I hadn't had one in years, and so I thought, I'm going to go in there and get an ice cream. So I pulled my car in, and I got out of the car. And as I started towards the door, I noticed there was an older gentleman in a wheelchair just sitting outside the front door. And I immediately thought, oh, no. Now I'm going to need to pray for him or say something to him or, you know, do something like a Christian should do. And, um, and so I did, did what every good Christian would do. I, I walked, so I went around another car and could get in without having to, like, look right at him. And uh, then I went in the store, and I waited in a long line, and I got up to the front, and they were out of Rocky Road. And I was so disappointed. So I grabbed a candy bar, and I went out. And the whole time I was in the store, I was feeling really bad about myself and what a terrible Christian I was being. And so I thought, well, the least you can do is walk by him and smile at him and say hello. And so I did. I walked by him. And as I got close, he said, good evening. And I said, hello, good evening. And then I walked to my car and I noticed that he was just in the wheelchair. He, he was missing his legs. And um, I got in the car and I just had this whisper in my soul that said, that could have been Jesus. And uh, so I ate my candy bar, which tasted like sawdust. And I just was angry with myself most of the way home. And so the next morning, I was processing it with Jesus, and because I just hate that, I got into that place, and I felt like the Lord said to me, I wasn't disappointed in you, I was disappointed for you. I had a treasure for you. And I share that story for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's such a great example of how religion takes our adventure of intimacy with Jesus and turns it into a yoke, the kind of yoke Robert talked about a couple weeks ago, that is all about us, and it's all about us getting it right. And that's my definition of, uh, of uh, religion getting it right. I have to get it right. And that's the first reason. The second reason I want to share it is that we are all at different places in this journey of getting set free from religion. I'd like to think I'm totally set free, and then something like that happens. 
and it rears its ugly head, and I realize I still need more freedom. And so this morning, we're going to share from from Galatians, that's the book we're in, but we're also going to share a lot of our own story of how the Lord has brought us on the journey. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles to Galatians 1, we're going to start there, and we'll start reading uh, at verse 6. And I want to talk first about what we call the gravity of religion. Galatians 1.6, Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, I can tell that Paul is ticked off. He does not give all these nice things like I've heard about your love or I've heard about how much you care for the poor. He doesn't say any of that. He jumps right in and he tells them and he uses words like astonished, which it's like he's saying to them, I've never heard anything like this before. And Paul is writing, by the way, to not one church, but to all the churches in the region of Galatia. And so what he's saying is this religious thing, this you got to get it right, had infiltrated all the churches. And he was not happy about it. He calls it deserting the gospel. And that was a word that was used to, to betray a lover. And so it's like you've betrayed the lover in Jesus. He says, it's a different, strange gospel. This is a strange gospel that you're following. The, it actually, then he goes on to say, it's not even a gospel at all because there's no good news in it. Trying to get it right has no good news. You've distorted it. And then he says, anybody who's telling you that following Jesus is getting it right should be accursed. And he says that twice. And that means doomed to destruction. Not very Christian loving language, right? <laughs> That's how serious it is when the gospel of Jesus Christ gets turned into religion and it becomes about us getting it right. The uh, specific issue that um, the Galatians were dealing with was these guys called Judaizers who had come in, and they were imposing circumcision onto the plan of salvation, saying they got not only faith in Christ, but you have to be circumcised as well. Obviously, that's not our issue, thank goodness. But let me show you how I think this plays out in our context. It's different, but the similar kind of issue. Here's, how, here's what I've seen in my life and others' lives after pastoring for a number of years. A person gets saved, and we, we say, you come to Jesus. It's about Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. So over here is Jesus. But then as soon as a person gets saved, what do we do? We say, now, in order to grow in this relationship with Jesus, there's some things you need to do, right? We say, you need to read your Bible. You need to pray. You need to have a FaceTime. You need to go to church. You need to go to life group. You need to give. You need to serve. Which, by the way, all those things are good, and it's, we're not wrong in sin. These are good things for us to do. These are right things for us to do. These are needful things for us to do. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't share that with people. That is important. But here's what happens. 
is, so here's my, I'm going to come back to this. You got to keep looking at this imaginary whiteboard that I have because I'm going to keep referring to this list of what I call the do's and don'ts in the Christian life. Do this and don't do that. Do this and don't do that. There's this list over here. So we come to Christ over here. You got to do these things. And what happens inadvertently, we don't mean to do this, but we take our eyes away from Christ and we put our eyes on this list of do's and don'ts which means that instead of having a relationship with the person, we have a relationship with these rules and regulations. And once we go there, once our eyes are focused there, now we've entered into the first step of legalism, which has many expressions. It'll come out in various ways. What I want to do is from this text in Galatians, share with you just six. There are numerous ways this will will express itself. I'm going to share with you six that maybe you can connect with. Galatians, the first couple of them are in Galatians 2 and 3, and 2 and 3, Galatians 2, 3, and 4. Um, Paul, Peter, or Paul had been preaching the gospel of faith in Christ. It, he had been affirmed by the various leaders, and look what he says in verse 3. Even Titus, but even Titus, who was a Gentile, not a, not a Jew, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So we just, he was saved by faith, didn't need to be circumcised. But then verse 4, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might might bring us into slavery. So here's the first thing. It's what I would call a comparison. Is what was happening here is these other brothers were looking at these other people who were Gentiles who weren't circumcised and saying, we've been circumcised. They haven't. Well, they need to be too. But it starts with a comparison, which is how it starts with us. Back to my list. We look at this list over here because that's where our eyes can easily flow to. And we start to compare how we stack up compared to others. It's just kind of natural, and I would say that's rather innocuous. That's normal. I'm encouraged. I, I love to read biographies, and oftentimes when I read these great biographies of great missionaries, I kind of feel a little bit like a, like a spiritual pygmy, but mostly I'm encouraged. I'm challenged by it. So finding out what other Christians are doing, sharing different things, and learning how different people share their faith and what they're doing, we can be encouraged by that. So comparison alone isn't wrong, but it can lead to something that is destructive, namely a critical spirit. And we see that because in that when it said to spy out, it literally means to examine carefully. We start to examine each other's lives. This is all subconscious. None of, none of us would do this consciously, not in our context, I know, because we're very much against legalism. But we start to measure, in fact, really we start to measure our lives compared to others. We spy them out, and then we end up having a critical spirit. And I think it plays out not mostly in us being critical of others, but a self-imposed critical spirit. We are critical of ourselves. We think, I don't measure up. So it starts with comparing. It's okay. What are people doing? How can I grow? How can I be more? It's okay. Hey, how can I, how can I follow with the example of others? That's okay. But when we, we feel like we've got to measure up, we have to stack up to what they're doing, and we don't, then we start to develop a critical spirit. That's where the trap begins. Now, let's continue then, because what happens next, and you'll see kind of a progression here. We go from comparing to a critical spirit, and then we're going to slip down, go to verses 11 and 12, verse 11 and 12. But when Cephas, that is Peter, that's, who, that's Peter's other name, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And because what Peter was doing, he was now beginning to look what other, other 
people were doing or not doing, and now he began to feel like, ah, maybe they need to be circumcised. So here's well, look what he did, verse 12. For before certain men came from James, or with James, the apostle James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision. So here's what happened. First of all, this is my third point. We go from comparison to to being critical, and then to an insecurity. And apparently, what, Paul, what Peter started doing is he was looking at what these other people are doing or weren't doing, how these circumcised Christians were, were okay, and now these other people that weren't circumcised. And he started to feel insecure in his standing in Christ, and then he started to get afraid. He got a fear of man, and so now he succumbs to their position, and he begins to distance himself from them because there's this fear of what other people are thinking, which is what we do next. We go from comparing to a critical spirit, and then we get insecure. Well, I just, man, I'm just not as spiritual as them. I need to be like they are. And we start to get insecure, and then we start to think, well, what do they think about us? We start to fear what other people are thinking of us. And then we're now, we're like headlong into legalism. We fall into that trap. And then it leads to a self, then it leads to the self-condemnation next. And the way I see self-condemnation play out is... And I'm going to home in specifically on FaceTime because I see this play out here more than any other specific activity in the Christian life, is that we begin to hear, we have a, let's say we have a 30-minute FaceTime. But we hear about other brothers who are sisters who have an hour FaceTime, and we say, man, i got to start having an hour. That's what I want to do. And so we set our alarms Monday morning. We get there. We have our FaceTime for an hour. We feel good about ourselves. We're on our way. That night, Monday night, we go to bed. We set our alarm again get up Tuesday morning, the alarm doesn't go off, so we don't wake up, we don't have our FaceTime, but we say, you know, that's okay, I'll be there next day. So that night, now it's Monday night, we sit, Tuesday night, I get these nights mixed up, we set the alarm the next time, and, uh, but we have a hard night of sleeping, and we're, so we say, I think I'll sleep another 30 minutes, at least I have my 30-minute FaceTime, so we do that. The next night, we set the alarm, we oversleep again. You know where this is going. By the time we get to Friday, the hour is done and gone. And then what we do, we start to say, I'm just a terrible Christian. I just, we can begin to condemn ourselves. So we go from comparison to critical spirit to insecurity to fear what other people think, try to line up what other people are doing, and then we feel self-condemned. And that's where we end up. One more thing is what I would, what's, is hypocrisy. Verse 13, and the, te- and the rest of the Jews acted hip- hypocritically along with him, that is, along with Peter, so that even Barnabas, who was led astray by their hypocrisy. So what had happened? They were hanging out with the Gentile believers who weren't circumcised, but when these other Jewish believers came along who emphasized circumcision. He began to back away from those who weren't circumcised. So now he's living this hypocritical life. Let me share with you how I think it plays out in our life, how hypocrisy, when you, when you begin to focus on this list over here, how hypocrisy can begin to play out in our life, I think is different than this, is that what happens is we begin to go through this maybe a dry season or maybe we're just getting kind of dull in our walk with God. We're not experiencing all that we would like to. But we look at our checklist and we're okay. I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm giving. I may be serving. But really, there's a dryness in our life. In reality, God's not really working like he really wants to, like we even ultimately want him to. But we check this list off over here, and so we think we're okay, and we don't press into what God wants to do in our life, and we just kind of cruise 
And there are many, many Christians who go year after year, and they're coming to church, maybe reading their Bible, they're giving, they're serving, but there's not a whole lot of life in their life, but they never lean into that because they're, I'm okay, I'm checking the list, and I'm okay. And they miss out, we miss out on what God wants to do and take us deeper in our relationship with him. Yeah. <laughs> when, I, when we were getting ready to do this message, I actually thought of that story I told at the beginning, and I thought, I can't tell that story. And I thought, well, I can clean it up a little, make it, not make myself sound so bad. And then it was like, the Lord said, if you're going to tell it, you got to tell it, you know, about the candy bar and the whole thing. And, but that hypocrisy slips in. That's religion is, I don't want you to know who I really am. But freedom is, it's okay if you know because I am what I am and God loves me. So uh, the next, uh, we looked at the, at the gravity, we looked at the impact. I want to just mention the impossibility of religion, the impossibility of getting it right. In Galatians 2.16, Paul writes, Yet we know that a person is not justified, that just means made acceptable to God, by the law or by getting it right, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the law, trying to get it right. Because by works of the law, by trying to get it right, no one will be made acceptable to God. And I think what happens, this Joe uses this picture of these things. I see it as like a hamster on that wheel, that we're just spinning, trying to do all the right things. And we never get anywhere. We feel stuck, and we don't know how to get off the wheel because we're trying to get it right. And that's because religion is impossible. It's not partially. You can't be partially. You're going to fail. You will only fail with religion. So what's the antidote? How do we, uh, how do we combat this? Because we have to combat it daily, not just once for all. And Joe and I spent some time together praying and talking about this. We had a lot of things we felt like we could say, but due to time, we narrowed it down to just two things. And so I'm going to read in Galatians 2, uh, verses uh, 20 and 21, very familiar passage. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If I could get right with God by getting things right, Jesus died for no purpose. That's what Paul says there. And the first thing I, I believe we see in this passage is the first thing we have to do is embrace our neediness. We have to see ourselves as very, very needy. Paul was basically saying, look, I am the guy who got it right. I have a lifetime of getting it right, but that guy is dead. And I now come, I, all I have is faith and Jesus in me, that's all I have. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But do we really believe that? He didn't say you can, you can do this much and I'll do this much. He said nothing, nothing. He said we have to come as a child. And children are needy. If you have kids, you know that kids are needy. Their whole lives, they're needy. And so we come as children. And we're going to share our own stories of how we came to embrace neediness in our lives. 
Yeah, so let me just share how this, before I share a story, how my list, look at my whiteboard over here. If you're utterly needy, you look at this list and you go, I can't do that. I'll never read the Bible enough. I'll never get to FaceTime enough. And so what does that do? You have to go back over to Jesus. You, your eyes focus back on Jesus when you have that total sense of utter desperation. And I still have a long ways to go, but where that really first began to land with me was, was in my call to be a pastor. A little backstory to that. Um, growing up as a little kid, I actually stuttered. In fact, I, I would have considered myself the least, one of the least likely persons to ever be called to be a pastor. Uh, as a kid, I stuttered, not all the time, but enough, and any amount is too much. It's embarrassing. In fact, some of you, if you've had this experience, raise your hand when I get done here in a, minute, in a second. In fifth or sixth grade, I had the, that experience where you have to give a, a speech in front of the class, you know where I'm going, and you're that kid that gets up there, as I did, and I froze, and nothing would come out of my mouth, and I ran to my seat, put my head down, and cried. I mean, I just was so petrified to do that. Any, any takers on that? All right, God bless you. I feel your pain. Uh, and then even in, um, in, in high school, as a, as a, and I had friends, and I played sports, so I was in front of people some, but didn't have to talk when you're bouncing a basketball or hitting a baseball. And when I would even talk with my friends and the five or six people in there, I would suddenly notice that all their eyes were on me. I would get tongue-tied. I'd get nervous. And so now it's, it's my 50 years ago this summer is when I was called into the ministry. And it was, it was, I still, I was just reflecting, it was just such a moving thing for me. I, we were at a youth camp. We, every year we went on a youth camp. And uh, at the end of the camp of the final Sunday night, they would have various youth stand up and give a testimony before the whole church of what God had done. And they asked me to give my testimony. And remarkably, I said, sure. And I'll never forget, I got up to speak and give my testimony on this stage. And, and I felt remarkably comfortable. And then, and I'll never forget this, I stepped down, and when my foot hit that first step, immediately I heard God say, as if audibly, it wasn't audible, but it might as well have been, this is what I've called you to do. And I knew in that moment profoundly, and it had to be for me a profound call, I would have never done it, I knew profoundly that God was calling me to be a pastor. The next day, I went and shared with my pastor what I felt God was calling me to do. And he said, well, Joe, if you feel that way, by the end of the week, on Sunday, we used to have altar calls, you know, where people came forward. That's how that's, you made the decisions at the altar. That's how you did it in my Southern Baptist church. So that Sunday night, I came down to the front, and I thought the pastor was going to introduce me and tell me the decision I made. He said, I think, he said, Joe has something to share with you. And all I could say, I still remember, all I could say was, God's calling me to preach. And I just started to weep like a baby, just wept and just, I was just so overwhelmed and and amazed, but I was also terrified because I knew there is no way I was up to, the, up, up to this. And what that did, though, that instilled within me that sense of desperation. I knew the only way I could be and do what God was calling me, not just as a pastor, but in anything, if, if I had this desperation. And there was this palpable, palpable sense of desperation that always has kind of been with me. I begin if not all, most, all of my FaceTimes with these words, God, I need you. And it's not a, oh, yeah, God, I need you. It's a, God, I am, it's a, God, I am desperate for you, need you. And I think that's not only 
helped me and just in doing what God wanted me to. It's been one of those things that at least helped me to guard my heart from somehow thinking I could do these things over here, this list. It helped me to stay focused on Jesus in that spirit of dependency upon him. So our stories are very different in this. Um, First of all, I was raised, I was also raised Southern Baptist, but we were, uh, it was a very, there was a strong legalistic emphasis. We were, our, our motto was, we don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with the boys who do. <laughs> and, um, and so, and I can remember preachers saying from the pulpit, that the blood of those who didn't trust in Christ was on our hands if we didn't go. And so I came by this naturally to think, I have to help God save the world. And you add that to, I'm an Enneagram 3, which is I'm an achiever, uh, high performance. If you need a job done, I'm going to get the job done. And so I came into the faith with a strong sense that I was there to get the job done for God, which is religion, but that is how I saw it. I did not see my own need. And uh, I constantly came to God and gave him all the things I was doing for him, and it was never felt like enough, but that's how I live my life. And then we went through a season at our church where uh, the Holy Spirit began to really move in power, and Joe got taken away by the glory of God, and he began to preach on it. He preached on it for 30 messages. And um, as God got bigger and bigger and bigger, in my, in, as I listened to him and I would go to the scriptures myself and try to understand this God, I began to realize that I don't think he needs me to save the world. And I know that can sound silly, but that is how I felt. And I, it really brought me to a crisis of faith. Like, well, then what am I here for? If God doesn't need me, why am I here? And it led up to one night when I, I just finally kind of just exploded and I told Joe, I don't know what to do because God doesn't need me. And Joe, I wish he would just give me a list. That's what I was hoping for. But instead, he just said, well, that's just it. You can't do anything, can you? <laughs> and wisely, he didn't say anything else. And, um, and I went to bed pretty frustrated. But I got up the next morning, and I was in my uh, FaceTime, and I was trying to get, I was telling the Lord, I just, I don't know really what to do. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know where to go with this. And the Lord began to show me a, a fire, and in the fire, he began to throw everything I had done for him. And it was a lot by then. I had written some books. I had led worship for 15 years. I had taught, I don't know how many Bible studies. I mean, I had spoken and taught, and it was all burning up. And I was weeping, and this went on for about 20 minutes. And I just kept weeping, and every time I would think it was over, he'd throw something else in that fire. And I got to the end of that, and it stopped burning. And I just said, God, is there anything left? And out of the ashes of that fire came this word in smoke, and it said, grace. And then the Lord spoke to me the most profound life message that I live by now. He said, Tricia, I've always worked in spite of you, and I always will. And... 
for me, that brought me to a level of freedom to know that even when I was in a prideful place of thinking God needed me to save the world, he was still pouring out his grace in me and through me and doing his work. That's the kind of God he is. But I then began to understand how needy I was before him. And like Joe, I began, to this day, I don't start a FaceTime without acknowledging, I'm coming in need, Lord. I have nothing to bring you. If you don't meet me here first, I come and I bring my neediness. So that's the first thing is embrace your neediness. It's good to be needy. It's not good to be strong. It's good to be a child so you can be in the kingdom of God. And then the second thing and the more important thing is we have to experience God's love. We have to, Paul wrote, the son of God, and he adds, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul had spent 14 years with Jesus alone, and he knew what it meant to experience God's love. So we'll, uh, we'll tell our stories. They're also very different. Yes, yeah, so again, the summer is when 50 years ago, God called me to preach. The, the June before that, the end of my freshman year, I had what I call my experience with the Holy Spirit. And now I guess I would call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But wouldn't call it as a Southern Baptist boy 50 years ago. Um, Backstory there. So I grew up Southern Baptist Church, and we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. That's what every good Baptist family does. Went to all the youth camps. So I was very involved in my church. And was your basic really, really good Christian. Made a commitment to Christ when I was nine years old. And I really believe I became a Christian then. But I found as I began to get a little older, even though I was going to church and was involved in all of that, and just trying to be as good of a person in the Lord as I could, um, when I was about 15 or 16, I just began to feel like something was missing. And I didn't, I didn't know what it was. I knew there was more in the Christian life than, than I was experiencing, even to the point that many times in the evenings when I was going to bed, I would just say, Lord, what am I missing? I'd cry out to the Lord. I actually would literally cry as a teenager, Lord, there's something missing. So our first, my first year as a freshman in college, towards the end, I started hanging out with some, got to know Trish and others, and we started having this little Bible study of five or six or seven of us, and we'd come together, and mainly we would just share what we were learning in our quiet times. Well, I was a good Christian boy, but not good enough to have a quiet time, so I didn't really have much to say, and I was kind of shy anyway, so I never really said a whole lot, but God was stirring my heart. And I'll never forget one night at God was just really working and things were, were brewing inside of me. And one night as we came to the end of the little Bible study, we would pray. And I eked out this little prayer. I don't even know what I said. It was just, I don't know what it was. But I said this little prayer. And when I said amen, immediately this experience happened where the reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit exploded inside of me. I mean, just this revelation that just blew me away. And I just, I didn't know what to, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't say anything. I don't think anybody knew what was happening. I just found a way to get out really quick. And I stepped outside. And as soon as I got outside and my feet hit the floor, I started, started at the ground. I started running, literally running, jumping up and down, yelling and, and hollering. I was all excited. I, I probably, I don't think I said praise Lord, hallelujah, because again, Baptists didn't say that back then. 
It was more like a yippee-yay-yay or yahoo or something like that. But I was, I don't know what people thought. I was going crazy. And God just got a hold of my life. But the most profound thing that came out of that experience is it was, it was that Jesus Christ, Jesus became incredibly real to me. I used to, I'd go around, I came back home to people at my church, and I'd say, I'd say Jesus is alive and he lives inside of me. It just, I just had to say something, even though it wasn't like anything new, but I was so excited. And, and I, I entered into, I called it a love affair. It's, I didn't know what words to use, but this intense, intimate love relationship with Jesus Christ. And it just totally changed me. And pro, as you can imagine, it profoundly changed me. And it, it just kind of carried with me all the years. That's what I come back to every time I FaceTime. It's mainly because I just, I just got to meet this Jesus. I got to get to know him. The greatest thing about being a Christian, and I love this last song, that, or this song about uh, he is enough, and that one phrase that, uh, that it's more than I can imagine. There's that pause, it's enough. And man, that's enough. The greatest thing about being a Christian isn't that you have a God who will meet your needs, isn't that you have a God who will give you purpose in your life, it's not that you have a God, not that you're going to go to heaven when you die, as great as that is. The greatest thing about being a Christian is that every day Jesus will walk with you and he'll talk with you and you get to spend time, you get to connect with this God named Jesus who loves you. And that's what's carried me through as a pastor all those years with all the ups and downs and challenges. Every, I would go to my FaceTime, and I, there, I had this little love seat in my office. And I would go get there. And I don't care what was going on. We went through our own building stuff that was, was terrific, that I almost burnt out. But I would go sit in my little, my little love chair, and I would meet with God and experience his love. And somehow, everything was Okay. People will ask me, Joe, how, how, how do you last so long in the ministry? Because most people don't. And I always felt like I got to come up with some clever answer, you know, for 30, 40 years and something. Got to be something clever. And there's nothing clever. It's just, it's, it's the intimate love relationship is that Jesus loved me. This I know. And not only does the Bible tell me that, I experience it. And it's real. That's the only way I stay. And it kept me, because it wasn't about this, it was about this. These just helped me give space for him to reveal himself to me. Okay. Well, again, my story was uh, quite different. Um, when I was 19, but a year before I even met Joe, I was actually engaged to someone else, and our relationship fell apart, and I was devastated, felt like my life was over. And I went home to, to I thought I was quitting college, and, um, and my, I had an older aunt who took me under her wing and uh, talked to me. And she, one day, I remember the place, I can see where I was standing. It was at a gas station downtown San Diego. I think gas was 22 cents a gallon. <laughs> True. And they washed your car while you got gas. And so we just got out and stood out on the, in the sun. And as, she, as we stood there, she said, Tricia, you just need to fall in love with Jesus. And I had not heard that growing up. That wasn't language we used. But when she said it, something just shook my heart. And I knew this is what I needed. But I set out to do what a high achiever does is I'm going to fall in love with Jesus. <laughs> 
And so I started doing all the things on the list. But here's the thing. I did fall in love with Jesus. Because who wouldn't fall in love with Jesus when you get to know him? But what I didn't know is that Jesus would fall in love with me, that he was in love with me. I didn't know how to experience that love. And so I, that, that uh, same time when uh, I had told Joe that and then I'd seen the fire, that morning after I saw the fire, I went into Joe after his FaceTime, my FaceTime, and I, said, and I told him all that had happened and what I'd experienced. And, he, and I was just weeping still, just weeping and weeping. And he put his arms around me and he said, Tricia, God doesn't need you, but he wants you. And um, I just could hardly believe it. I could hardly believe that he wanted me, and he didn't need me. He wanted me, not what I could do, not what I could bring, not what I could accomplish, but just me. And that's when I began to experience his love. But I, I, Joe went to work, and I called a friend who, who was the most Jesus-like person I knew in the whole wide world, and I asked her to come over. She also led the interpretive dance uh, ministry at our church, and they had been doing this dance uh, over the church at the front, and it was called, He Will Rejoice Over You. And I thought, I know, I'll have her come and teach me that dance. And if I can do that dance, then I'll experience God's love. And, um, and so she came, but very wisely, after I told her the whole story, instead of teaching me, she said, I just want you to sit down there in the middle of the living room. And she had her boombox, and she put the music in, and then she began to dance to these words. The Lord our God is with you. It's from Lamentations 3. The Lord our God is with you. He is mighty to save. The Lord will take great delight in you. He will quiet you in his love. He will rejoice over you. He will rejoice over you. And this is the part that just did me in. If you only you could hear his voice you would hear the Lord rejoicing over you with singing. And as I sat there for the first time, I could just get a hint of a God who loved me so much that he would dance over me and rejoice over me with singing. And uh, we're going to have a little bit of time in a minute to really process this a little more, but I want to end with a story uh, that happened then that next year. Joe and I... Uh, so we're dating. We, we, we didn't really want to be in a, like a real relationship. So we were just like friends and a little bit more. And um, so <laughs> I'll leave that to your imagination. And um, a little so, bit more. Only a little bit. <laughs> so one night, so we dated for a full year. And <laughs> one night, uh, I realized somewhere, you guys got me all flustered now. Um, I realized along the way after about a year that I was actually falling in love with him. And, um, and so then I was like, do I tell him? Don't I tell? What do I do? And so we were uh, at Balboa Park, and we, it was a beautiful night, beautiful view. And I was very quiet, which was uncharacteristic. And so finally he said, a penny for your thoughts. And I took a deep breath, and I said, well, I think I'm falling in love with you. Dead silence. <laughs> yeah, it, it, gets, it wasn't my finest moment, and it, it's about to get worse. <laughs> yeah. So 
I'm waiting. And then finally, I'm waiting and waiting. And finally, he says, well, all I can say is, it doesn't bother me that you say that. (laughs) Yeah, I'll never be accused of being a romantic, I'm sure. (laughs) Yes, he is. But in that moment... But, you know, I I came to understand later, he was, uh, you know, we had a group at our college. This was during the Jesus movement. Jesus was coming back any day, and uh, they had a group called BTRU, Bachelors Till the Rapture United. And... um, And, you know, what he was trying to tell me is, you're not scaring me away by saying that. So that was the best thing he could say. And, you know, within, I don't know, even a month, I think he realized he was in love with me. And and it's been almost 48 years. So, you know, yeah. But the reason I, I wanted to end with that story is I just feel like what happened to me with Joe that day is what I did to God with all those years of my religion and trying to get it right. Because God had come and given his son for me to show me how much he loved me. And he opened up the tenderest part of his heart, the most vulnerable place in himself and said, I love you. And I shrugged it off with all my activity and trying to be good enough and trying to get it right. And I think especially if we grow up in the church and we've sung, Jesus loves me, this I know, we can be so um, immune to the wonder and the mystery of God's love. And so this morning, this is how we want to end. We want to invite you into the space to let God sing over you to let him rejoice over you with singing. Because that song is right. You'll never be more loved than you are right now. Never. He loves you. He's God. He loves you. And his love is deep enough for your deepest loneliness. It's wide enough for your shame and your unworthiness. It's powerful enough for your pain and for your struggle, for your addictions. His love is enough, and he wants to say to you, I am rejoicing over you right now with singing. So would you just close your eyes here for a minute? Experiencing God's love is not something that we do once. I think we need a baptism of his love so many times throughout our lives, and then we need to experience it every day. When Mother Teresa was dying, she wrote a letter to all the women in her ministry, and she said, I'm worried that some of you don't really know Jesus, not in chapel praying, but really one-to-one with him, him looking at you and you looking at him. And then she said, you know, how can we last even one day without hearing Jesus say, I love you? She said, impossible. The soul needs that as much as the body needs air to breathe. Your soul needs to hear Jesus say, I love you. And so I'm going to pray over you, and then the band's going to sing over you. And you can just sit there and receive it. You can come here and kneel if you want. Uh, Prayer people, be ready to if you want someone to pray it over you. But we're just going to do nothing but receive. 
Lord Jesus, we invite you to come right now. We know you're already singing over us. If we could only hear your voice, Lord, we would hear you rejoicing over us with singing. And so I ask you in the mighty name and power of the cross that we would hear you rejoicing over us with singing.